Good morning. It's good to be here. And I see you're growing and exciting things are happening. Don't take it as worrisome, but I get to hear a lot most mornings. We Church stuff comes up, so it's exciting what God's doing here. And it's exciting to speak here. I think it's good to have like-minded churches, be in communion with each other. At some point, I would love to have Matt come to our church, but I think it's good when it seems sometimes that they're when it feels like there's few of us around who maybe still seek truth and have a commitment to doctrine, and we see the importance of it, especially as difficult as life can be, uh, preparing yourself, building yourself up, it's not just for salvation reasons, but there's practical application to it. But this can sometimes have a bit of a pitfall to it, especially if you can tell I'm turning into the older guy who will speak about younger people now. But as you haven't experienced much difficulty in life, there is a chance if you get into this world of God's Word and really digging deep, you can get this false sense that, well, I'll just study enough, I'll indoctrinate myself enough that I'll be prepared. I know God's sovereignty, I know the Gospel, so I'll be able to handle it. And if you allow me to, I've never quoted him before in a sermon, but Mike Tyson said, everyone has a game plan until you get punched in the face. And that's kind of the same thing what life's about. We can have all our ideas, ideologies in a row, but all of a sudden life happens and it's going to happen to every one of us. It will punch you in the face. And this is why the life of David is so helpful to us. Because if you're going to say, well, if I only build my doctrine strong enough that I'll be prepared to handle anything then you're actually putting yourself above David because David obviously couldn't. So it's very important to study David's life and the Psalms of David. So if you want to turn with me to Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountiful with me. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you that we are able to gather here, that the weather has become comfortable, uh, preparing us for harvest season. I prepare you equally, prepare us for the harvest that is out there in what sometimes seems like a fallen and lost world, and yet the opportunity is great. So I pray for churches like this, that we can take the gospel to a nation so desperate in need of it. But also let us preach it to ourselves as we fall into our own difficult days. So I pray, especially today, for anyone going right now who can't see past the darkness and can't see much past today, that you would just bring a word to them this morning. So we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now it's good, because just like you, we're going through the Psalms in our church too, and Kind of seems in a rhythm as I get to preach through the Psalms the next couple of weeks. And much like I'm sure you've been taught here, the narratives, you never want to take the narratives just as stories that we can apply one-to-one to our own life. 
But you also don't want to do that with emotions and trials, especially through the Psalms, to say, well, this happened to David. Oh, I know exactly how he's feeling. And say, I can apply this to myself. I think we want to try to make it meaningful. We want the ratio to be a little more even. So when we talk about David crying out to God, how long? That's not like us waiting for an Amazon package saying, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Oh, I know how David was feeling. No, I think to make a psalm like this meaningful, we got to say this is, I think specifically to a very dark, dark time in life, specifically that very few people go through or at any given time will go through. This is things like chronic pain. Someone who hasn't escaped waking up in brutal pain every morning or depression that's lasted for years or a broken marriage wondering for a long time, can I repair this thing? Children, you've been praying for a long time that are unsaved and you wonder, is God ever going to answer you? Things that will test you. And I'd love this morning to tell you there is a way to deal with this. Or you may not have to go through with this. But I am sorry to say that almost every Christian at some point will experience this dark period in life. They will experience a period where they will cry out to God, Where are you, God? And what makes this psalm so beautiful is it's so dark, and yet it is a transition psalm. One that goes from deep despair and brings us to comfort and joy. And it starts with a prayer. That's exactly what this is at the beginning. David prays, how long? And he says that four times he prays it. Now you notice in this prayer, first thing you notice about it is his honesty and his brevity. It's short. Often we feel the darker things get, we need to manufacture some kind of long prayer. If I maybe spend the whole night in prayer, maybe God will answer me. But you look at David's prayer, I at least can identify with him. I'm one of those people, the darker the things get, the shorter my prayers get. I'm not someone who can go all night and just cry out to God. I'll be someone, I'll got like two lines in me and that's it. And it's comforting to know David didn't give us five chapters of prayer. It's just a couple lines, crying out to God, letting Him know. Where are you, God? And this is the thing about trials like this. It's often duration over intensity. If I talk to most people who have experienced really dark depression or things like that, they'll always say, I'd rather have it much rather be intense but short, but over a long period of time, because it's duration that wears a person down. At the beginning, especially if you're a strong, strong in the gospel, strong in your doctrines, you'll know, okay, hard times come. I can get through this. I'll trust in God. But also that goes into week two, week three. Also we're into months. And hopefully not, but also you're into years. That's what beats a person down, wondering where is God. And often this is what this psalm amounts to, feeling when God's abandoned you. These are the trials and light here. And I'm not bothered by David praying this. Some people will say, well, how can you ask God where He is? Or how can you feel like He's abandoned you? Now the good thing about David's prayer, it's often I tell him people ask me or feel guilty that they're struggling with the sin. In a small sense, that actually brings joy. Because if you're struggling with the sin, that means you're fighting it. In the same way, if you're crying out to God, how long, God? Why don't you answer me? Where are you? Well, that tells me one thing, that you still are holding on and you still believe. See, an atheist would never pray that prayer. Someone who's apostatizing, they don't pray that prayer. 
Someone who still has a belief that God's there cries out to him. They obviously, he, David obviously believes. He still has faith that this will be resolved. David still deep down expects God to show his face again. That's why in these next two verses, we see David can make his requests. And yes, can David pray like this? Well, he can because you notice, he still prays in submission. When he prays in verse 3, or sorry, he prays, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? Then in verse 3, consider and answer me. This isn't a rude prayer. David is not, there's a difference between being angry with God. We must always watch that line of walking over and telling God, answer me, as if God owes you something. God owes you nothing. And David knows that, and he comes to him in reverence. David says, consider me, answer me. See, this is a different heart. This is a heart crying out to God. There's submission and reverence all over it. And realize too, he says, O Lord, my God. That's personal. David knows that he is his God. And this isn't hyperbole when David says in verse 3, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I know we as men sometimes can get criticized when we're a bit sick. We right away think we're dying and... I know you women will make fun of us, right? That we no, in this case, this isn't David being a wimp. David actually, I would say, he is literally on the point of death. I wouldn't say this is hyperbole. David wasn't eating, was on the run. Context is always hard to know with these psalms, but the best case we have is David's on the run from uh, Saul. And timetable, they can narrow this down. That Probably it's gone on for eight years. Eight years he's been on the run, not eating, weak. There is a good chance that David was close to dying. So when he says, light up my eyes, I think it would be very easy for the preacher and me to want to go off on a trail about needing Scripture to illuminate us and having some kind of deep meaning to that. I think that's strictly just physical. And I say that because we have other examples where that's all it is. We have that in 1 Samuel 14.27 you remember when Jonathan pokes the honey and eats from it? Then it says, his eyes were lit up. He was brightened. I hear it's strictly just talking. David's asking for physical sustenance. And a little thing we can take away from that is that physical does matter. We can sometimes become so spiritual that we forget about the body. We want to make it, it's all spiritual. It's just deal with the mind, deal with the spiritual side. And we totally think the body doesn't matter, right? <clears throat> but we need to think also, people will think they're beaten down and they want all the spiritual help, yet they're going to bed at two at night. They're not eating. They're doing all these things, just totally, their body's wearing down. But they focus so hard on the spiritual that there is a means in which we need to take care of ourselves. So David's both beaten physically, mentally, and yet, in verse 4, there's a transition that begins here. Because we can often point to verse 5, but I'd say it begins in verse 4, where David starts transitioning. Where he says, Lest my enemy says I've prevailed, prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. 
This is, I think, where David started thinking about God's sovereignty, started thinking about God's promises. Not in a fatalistic way, but David started to remember that in everything God does, he has purpose to it. Knowing God had a plan at work, this doesn't make it any less difficult, but there at least is some purpose in what he's going through. David wanted to submit to God's plan, even though he didn't know the where or the when, the why. And there's a question, if anyone gets into the vocation of helping people, dealing with hurting people, it's not long and you're going to get asked why. Why is this happening? And people, I think early on it's actually more a beginner level thing. You're so eager to help people, you want all the answers. Because people, oh perfect, they're asking why. Now I can give them answers. I can really help them out. And there are some answers. I don't have time to go into it today, but I'll quickly give the four I usually get. Give. One, it's a fallen world. We're dealing with the consequences of it. Sin has ravaged this world. And how do we expect to have anything different? Two, this is how God brings glory to Himself. I think it was Thomas Watson who said, the answer to every question that go, has a blank that goes, why would God blank? That answer is always essentially the same. For His glory. <clears throat> Thirdly, it's for our sanctification. This is how God shapes and molds people. If everything was well all the time, how well can you see yourself becoming more sanctified, drawing closer to God? And then fourthly, probably the most theological answer I can give people when they ask, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? You know what? You get in this long enough, you're able to see it. I don't know. For some people, that's all you can give them. You know what? I'll sit with you. I'll listen to you. But I don't, I don't know. You don't have to try to give, fix everything. There are things we won't know and we do a disservice to people when we think that we always have a word that can solve their problems. There is a point some people just need to be sat with, be there for them. We don't always have to have the answers. And I've become alright with that. I think I do a lot less damage sometimes than when I try to have all these right answers and think that I can really help this person get through this. And then I'll add one more, especially in our church lately, I've really been stre stressing discipleship. And it's just starting to see how much we grow through discipleship by our trials. Personally, I'll admit, which some of you can identify with, I've spent most of my life with a farmer mentality. People who are melancholy, depression, can't get going. There's nothing a two-by-four won't fix. Like, these people just need to get to work. I had no patience for people who couldn't get going. But what was that? It was pure ignorance. I had no idea. had never dealt with it. So it's very easy to judge. Then all of a sudden what started happening, because I assumed these were people, especially as I got a little stronger Christian, I was like, oh yeah, these people just like, they have no truth in their life. If they would just have some stronger truth and understand the gospel and things, well then all these things would become trivial because after all, what's earthly trouble compared to what we've been given in the gospel? These people just need to learn the gospel. And then all of a sudden what happened is I started noticing, oh, now all of a sudden some real men that I look up to struggle with this. And I really struggled with that. What's going on here? And then I started struggling more. All of a sudden some real godly men I looked up to struggled with this. 
Right? Remember, first time seeing some of these people weep in front of me. My head was, this guy's a godly Christian. I totally respect. I've always looked up to him. How can he be dealing with this? And this is how I started being opened up to this world of darkness. Then another level I started to realize Luther, Kelvin, Edwards, Spurgeon, all these men I read and looked so greatly up to, depression in every one of them. All of them felt like giving up at some time, wondering what was God was doing to them. Then I think it made sense to me when I read Spurgeon. He said, God cannot use a man greatly until he has cut him deeply. That is what we see from some of these great godly men. That's what God's doing with His work. He's cutting men up so that He can use them for His service. This is why I love reading the Puritans so much. We think such a golden era. These guys were such great theologians. They were good theologians. But what made the Puritans the Puritans, they were pastoral. They could actually bring these things together. And I advise anyone who needs to work, realize some of this stuff, there's good books out there nowadays, but instead of all kinds of counseling books, I wonder some of it, if we go back and read some of the Puritans, Richard Sibbs, A Bruised Reed. Um, anyway, forget who wrote God's Providence of Affliction. One after another, you can find endless list. These men suffered deeply, greatly, but they used it to disciple others. See, oftentimes now we criticize the state of our American church. Nobody preaches on sin anymore. People don't want to preach the hard sayings. Where are the pastors who are going to step up and preach on this stuff? I guess I've always been a bit of an outsider, contrarian. That's easy for me. Bible says it. I'll preach it. I don't really have any problem with that. Well, no, it scares me to death preaching this kind of stuff. I don't know how to help people who are going through. I have no idea. Right? You want to come talk to your pastor? I'm sure he'd say the same thing. You want to come visit with me about eschatology, end times, anything? We can differ. Hey, I grab a coffee. I think I'd get, enjoy that stuff. I do that stuff for fun. Come tell me. Ask me why you can't have kids. Ask me why your children don't come home. I, I feel helpless at times with that. And if you want, I'm going to scare him a bit. But why else come if I can't give a bit of insider information on your pastor? You may think this is tough, starting a church. It is work. Dare I, he'd even admit the elders put in a ton of work. That, it is hard work. But I'll be honest with you. I don't think he struggles much on the thing. You think he's... I know you did a series a month ago on manhood, womanhood, and oh, that's, ooh, yeah, that's dangerous water, right? No, I, he gets a bit of a twinkle in the eye when he gets to speak on that stuff. But you know what keeps him up at night? You know why he comes to the barn and hasn't slept at all? It's because there's hurting, hurting people here, and he doesn't know how to help them. He doesn't know what the right words are. How can I help these people out of this? Because there's... Those answers are much tougher. But this is why discipling is so important. We can use our own trials at least. I was thinking about that just this morning. I tried thinking of one person who's gotten into counseling. 
who hasn't dealt with trials, deep trials of their own. I'm sure there's some, but that correlation makes perfect sense. Almost every one of them, God has cut up deeply at some time. Now they're taking that, and they're going to help someone else. This is why people bond so much. You see, parents, there's an instant bond when they both have unsaved children, adult children. Why do they bond over that? Why do you go to the children's hospital and see parents even of different faiths and religions? They'll bond over that. When you walk through something with someone, you have a great chance of discipleship. But empathy alone won't comfort. Or empathy alone can comfort. But it still won't pull people out of despair. For that we need two things that David had. To know God's Word, and through that, to know who God is. This is why we do need to be rooted in Scripture. To be prepared for these times. David had no one. And yet he made this great transition. We see just a total change here in these last two verses. And how did he do it? Well, in verse 5, I find it so fascinating that it's come up. I think I'm on like 10 sermons in a row. I've got a but. And just to give you a quick tip of hermeneutical advice, if you're ever reading your Bible and you see the word but, I recommend you stop, go back, read the paragraph behind it, and then keep going. Because that but is becoming my favorite word in the Bible because all over you see when you're reading, without God, without God, without God. Then that but comes in, and you see with God, with God, with God. And you see a total flip of the switch after the but. And that's what we see here with David. David feels all these things deeply that almost everyone who's going through the dark time in their life, each one of them will almost feel the same four things. One, they don't feel heard. Going back to verse 3. Consider and answer me. David doesn't feel heard. Secondly, they don't feel remembered. They feel forgotten. Nobody remembers me. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Thirdly, they don't feel seen. How long will you hide your face from me? When you're going through this, you feel as if no one sees. And fourthly, David feels as if God doesn't know. Verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul? That's David turning inward instead of upward. And he's feeling as if God doesn't know, so I've got to figure it out this himself, myself. And this almost makes me wonder here. We forget sometimes that David would have had Scripture. We think we got the Scripture. David would have at least had the first five books of the Bible. Maybe not all written, but orally. And I wonder if he remembered his dad Jesse reciting some of the works of Moses, the Exodus. And if you allow me to take a little bit of time to just drop back to Exodus 2.24 for a bit. Because I find the correlation here exactly what David's saying. Exodus 2.23 During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And here we have what's often 
going to be referred to the four words. And God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. These four words are what David, I think, started leaning on to realize. One, God heard their groaning. Think here too, the Egyptians, this wasn't overnight. They had been wandering for a hundred years and waiting. And God heard. So we often think the blessing is in God hearing us and giving us an answer that He'll act on it. We need to remember the blessing is simply that God hears. Who is God that we should be able to talk to Him, come to Him? The blessing is that God hears. But we want God to act right away. That's our problem. He only hears if He answers. But that's arrogance on our behalf, if I may put it bluntly. That's saying, okay, once you act the way I want on my timing, then you've answered me. Until then, I feel you don't hear me. No, remember, God always hears. Hearing is not based on results. And He remembered. Our second word. And this is not just a general remember like, oh, God remembered Stu. No, He remembered. This is all-encompassing. God remembered. What does it say? God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, with Jacob. This is covenantal language. When God remembers His covenant, He's remembering all those promises that it contains. See, often we make two errors when we feel as if God doesn't remember. One, we think we can earn our way, earn His ear, so to speak. Back to, well, if I pray long enough, if I can get my life in order enough and walk righteously enough, well, then I'll get God's ear back again and He'll answer me. Or we go the other way. I'm too far gone. I'm not praying. I'm not reading my Bible. I feel so blah. I feel totally out of step with God. Okay, surely He's not going to hear me because I'm not doing all the things He wants. So why would God listen to me? We need to remember, God comes to deliver you based on nothing about what you're doing. He delivers you because if you are His children, He remembers His covenant. And God has made that promise and that covenant has a promise that in Christ, you are His. Our hope is in Christ through the covenant of redemption. Often the mistake is made if you get into the covenantal language. Who is the covenant of redemption made with? We think well with us. No, the covenant of redemption was God with Christ. In it, Christ took on all His work it contained. And in so, God promised Him a people. Which means, if you are in Christ, you are God's. And you can never lose that. Often the debate comes up and we'll be challenged. Well, do you believe in can you lose your salvation? I don't like it coming at that angle. Because it's not about me. That's again me, right? Can I lose my salvation? I'm sure I could if it was up to me. But covenantal language comes out it the other way. Rather ask, if you are in Christ, can Christ lose you? If you're going through this thinking that you have fallen out of favor with God, no, the question is, can Christ lose you after He has promised to hold you in the palm of His hand? You are secure there, and nothing you can do can lose that. So as important as it is for us to remember God, it's much, much more important 
that you remember. God remembers you. That's what it hinges on. Will you always be delivered from earthly suffering? Sorry to say no. But, remember, if you feel abandoned by everyone, you feel alone, you feel broken, well, just remember, that is nothing yet compared to what your Savior experienced on the cross. Completely broken, completely abandoned. We go back to these first four, four, first four verses. Everything David went through, just think, Christ went through all of that much more than he did. Thirdly, God sees. People often have the problem of thinking that I'm so insignificant what I'm going through. God doesn't see what's going on. Besides, who am me? Who am I? Insignificant compared to we got war in Ukraine. We got everything else God's got to deal with. So it's very easy to think we fall kind of by the wayside out of God's sight, especially when we have this problem we all can't help it. We all just lean to still struggling seeing God as a person who's looking down over all while and still thinking like it's so vast. Surely just tiny me hiding out behind something. God doesn't see me. And we think that because surely if God would see what's going on, He'd fix it. How could a loving God just stand back and not step in? How could He leave you? How can He watch as the cancer is spreading? And just stand there, right? That's what it feels like to us. How can he watch as my marriage is falling apart? And I'm crying out to you, God, and you're like, hands up? You're not doing anything? It's very easy to see how people think. God doesn't see. Doesn't see the abuse we see going on. Doesn't see the millions of babies executed in this land. Doesn't see our state of family in complete chaos. Let me assure you, God sees, and deep down, every one of us knows it. And we should even be a little bit comforted, comforted though it's hard to see sometimes. Comforted sometimes that He doesn't fix it. Because here's our comfort. If God sees and He doesn't fix it, and we believe God to be all-powerful, the only end we come to in that, obviously there's something bigger going on here. Surely if God is letting go and letting this play out, we can at least surely take comfort that providence and sovereignty is at work. That there is a purpose in this. And finally it says, God knows. Or it said, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And first we want to make sure that we don't assume God knows because He sees as if God looks down sees what's going on. Oh, now He knows what's going on because He saw that. See, some people try to work this. They want to take this middle path of, well, yeah, God knows everything with foreknowledge and they even try to even safeguard it to be in the middle. They'll say, well, yeah, God knows and He sees all and He has from the beginning of time because, well, God looked down the corridors of time and so He knows. He saw it all ahead of time, right? Yeah, but that's still saying that God learned something. So even though I've got to be careful, because it would offend many, because this is by far the majority view, this is the problem they have, though, saying, from the beginning, God looked down and His foreknowledge saw what was going on, and that's how He knows. 
and don't want to throw out this word often, but it's close to blasphemy because you're saying that God can learn something. If you take that view, you're saying there was a period where God did not know. He looked down the corridors of time. Now he learned what's going to happen. Now he knows. And I think when you put it that way, it's very hard to see or very easy to see that that is a big problem. God is all-knowing because he has ordaineth everything which comes to pass. Even that which crushes us, as hard as that is to accept, even that which we don't like, because it's very easy, you bring that language, that's not popular pulpit language, to say that God might crush you. God might break your, every one of your bones, figuratively. But what does David say in Psalm 51? We know that passage of repentance, 51.8, where he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David doesn't have a problem acknowledging that it is God who crushes us sometimes. God knows better than you could ever imagine because He's sovereign. He knows everything about you. When He talks of knowing you, He knows intimately everything about you before you were even conceived. And He knows everything about you, what you need, what you can do, and what is good for you. And Christ knows. Christ knows because He experienced this all, forsaken on the cross. And if you think this applied to Christ, that God knew He had a purpose in crushing His own Son, breaking Him on the cross, and He had a purpose in that, well, surely we can think, can't this apply to me? No matter how dark things get, if it applied to Christ and the greatest story came out of that, why do we think that this couldn't apply to me, what God's going to do? Because it did to David. Think the Savior of the world came through his family line. Think of David's story. We think of David as this great king, just this, man, David's life was awesome. Read David's life. I wonder if you'd break it down. How many good years did David have? I wonder if that's like a very small portion of David's life that was actually fun, happy, the words we like. David's life was one of on-the-run children that shafted him, fell away, being chased. David's life was, there's actually not much enjoyable that looks about it. But think of everything that came out of it. And even on a practical level, Luckily for us, we get the Psalms. Think of all the Psalms that David wrote. Back to discipleship, in a sense. Through that, David disciples us when we get to read through this. How often do we look back and are able to say, though, this is where discipleship helps too. <clears throat> Help others and for our own lives. Look back on your own life and think. When you look back at some of the hardest things you experience and you've come through and say, Oh, that was good. I wouldn't want to change that. In the middle, you're never going to say that. But if you go back on your life and what God's done in your life, look at this church. I think all you who started here, leaders, man, I'm sorry. Some things get shared in the barn. I know you weren't having fun. But would you want to change anything? Look at what you've built up here. Look at what God did through sleepless nights. We have the same thing in our church. Last few years weren't great, but all kinds of faces there we didn't see before. I don't think I'd want to change it. 
you go, how many of you, I'm sure there's more than one of you who could say, you have this beautiful family now, and you look back when you were younger and think, when you were crushed, let's say, by a relationship that didn't work out, now you look back and, oh, I'm sure glad God broke that one off, right? But that only comes through on the other side. Looking back is where we always see God's goodness. David knew all these truths. And now we get to the part where he's fully transitioned. In verse 5, we see a total different David here. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountiful with me. How can there be such a drastic change? Because remember, the easy thing to think, okay, David got through his trial, now looking back, now he's able to see the good in it. No, David's still right in the middle. David is right in the middle of the darkness still here. Don't think chronologically anything's changed between verse 4 and 5. This is as bad as it could have been still. But David's mindset has changed. Most people, that's a thing... When we look back is where we often need to look back because of how it strengthens us. Looking back at what God's done. Being able to testify to God's goodness in our life. See, the present will often overwhelm us. The future is going to terrify us. But looking back is going to strengthen us. Verse 6, he says, He dealt bountiful with me. And this is all looking back. This is why often I've said, which we need more of in preaching, is preaching indicatives over imperatives, which simply indicatives are what has been done, imperatives are what you should do. And so much preaching is imperatives. Go do this. Go do that. Like pushing, look forward. And that's fine. We want the imperatives, but they must always be rooted in the indicatives. I still, if you... Have the energy, read through the whole Bible, and come back to me and tell me if you find one imperative that doesn't rest on an indicative. At no point does the Bible say, just go do this. No, every time it starts with, because of this, now you can do this. We always fail when we don't look back. That is the heart of our faith. The gospel is in the indicatives. That is where David sees this steadfast love. This term you see throughout the Psalms, this is that Hesed term. Basically, it means God saying to him, I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what you think. I don't care if you think you're going somewhere. I'm not going anywhere. I love Augustine's term of the hound of heaven, where even if you think you're going to run from God, he's coming for you. He will not, if you are one of his, you can't outrun God. You can't give up because he's going to pull you back in. And this is what I like about that last line there where David says, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountiful with me. That's a part I need to work on. It's like, okay, I trust enough in the gospel, it pulls me through. Okay, I can get back to ground level. David doesn't settle for ground level. He's not just, okay, I trust God, we're good again. No, David's about much more than just sustaining his way through life. David says, no, this is still really unfair. 
think of isn't this so cruel how bad it was totally in a place of darkness totally abandoned and yet what does David think it's not all right yeah it's true I feel this bad this dark but you did this so it's kind of like we often want to wash it out all right we'll keep going no no David says and think again this isn't a small trial this is like the pit of darkness and David doesn't even say, okay, I'm good. David says, no, no, God, you have dealt bountiful with me. All this, this is all little stuff compared to what the gospel has given me. You have given me so much, and I deserve none of it. This, what I'm going through, that's what I deserve. In fact, much more. If I get what I deserve, what, if God dealt with me fairly, actually, I would be dead. I'd die of starvation. Saul would have killed me already. That would have all been just or fair. David says, no, no. You have dealt bountiful with me. Anything you've given me is bountiful. He'll rejoice in your salvation. See, he's not just all right. David's rejoicing. And salvation, think Old Testament, a little different than we see salvation, of course, as salvation, a saving of our souls. Often salvation... Old Testament, basically to them, it would have, they would have just defined it as deliverance. You've delivered me. David rejoices in that. Even though nothing's changed except David remembering God's goodness to him. Remembering that God is good and He is bountiful. David still knew what was coming. No matter what. Will it be solved in this life? This is probably very hard to tell people for some of them because they ask, when will this end? And it's very hard to be honest and say, maybe not here. Right? That's one of the things I find hardest, hearing people who are a lifelong of whatever they're dealing with and there is no end to it. But that may be the case. And yet David didn't need safety, health, didn't need food, didn't need his throne. God was enough to say, I will rejoice in my salvation. <clears throat> Can we say that? See, often we, we want to chastise the Catholics often and say, well, they don't believe in the gospel. Well, I think we need to be more fair with them. They believe in Jesus, grace, Jesus saves their problem is adding the plus. They take the gospel and add on plus. So we stand in judgment to them and say, see, they have a Jesus plus gospel. Dare I say we do the same thing a little bit. Not with soteriology, not with salvation. We do it more with the day-to-day. -day. Most of us, if we're honest, oh, we'd never say it if I'd ask you, is God enough? I think all of us would, yep, God is all I need. But our day-to-day -day very quickly becomes Jesus plus. We think, yeah, God is all I need. But could I just give me health? Or we say, God is all I need, but I'd just be happy if you could just fix some relationships, fix my marriage. Right? God is all I need. Yeah, he's all I need. He's enough. 
but could you just make sure my kids are saved? As long as that's there, I'm good. Right? We all have these little things still our happiness rests on. We're just plus that. No, the gospel is no plus. God is all we need. The cross is all we need. Christ died, rose, saved you. That alone says that God has dealt bountiful with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. In fact, we thank you even more when we don't know where you are when we can't. Feel as if we're heard, seen, remembered. And yet at these times, the gospel is even better news for us, knowing that you have sought us out, you have brought our hearts in line with you, you have justified us and made us your own through Christ. And we know, no matter the circumstances in life, that is not changing. And we can sing and rejoice in that, even when our hearts are broken. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Stronger
of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood beneath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. charge is this. David was a man after God's heart, yet he suffered immensely. Questions of why and how long are common in his prayers. Many experience the feeling of pain when abandoned by others, but the pinnacle of darkness is to feel abandoned by God. In spite of this, David endured the darkness and found the resolve by acknowledging God's sovereign goodness. We can only claim this hope through the gospel. Since Christ was abandoned and accursed on our behalf, even through the darkness, we too can find joy and strength in His saving work. And benediction this morning is at a Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.